A trillion here, a trillion there. News reports note that the federal budget deficit jumped up 23% to $1.7 trillion this year after two years of declines. Here's a riddle. How does climate change factor into this? There's a swirl down under. A low-flying helicopter is said to have sparked a massive crocodile orgy in Australia. <laughs> wow. And gobble gobble. Japanese scientists discover a bacteria happily munching on plastic bottles and toys. Could this be a solution to plastic pollution? I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we'll be talking with Adam Aaron. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, and also author of a new book called Climate Crisis, Science, Impacts, Policy, Psychology, Justice, and Social Movements. If you like interviews that are highly politically correct and dance around the core, you're not going to like this one. But if you like voices that cut right to the heart of the manor in a very candid way, you're really going to love our interview with Adam Aaron. He has one of the most clear and really incisive messages on the climate crisis. I'm Nate, a private practice OBGYN and delegate to our national and international OBGYN societies on, uh, as an environmental health expert. And I'm Bruce, a women's healthcare physician in San Diego. I'm on the editorial board of the Journal of Climate Change and Health. Nate, what is going on with you these days? Catch me up. Yeah, well, I, I got a new watch. <laughs> you needed that. Obviously, every every watch addict needs a new watch. People might know I've I've got kind of a side hobby as a as a watch enthusiast and collector, and occasionally write some watch blogs for a, a site that I joined when I was living in Washington D.C. Yeah, it's always exciting to get a new watch, especially when there's some attached meaning to it. This one uh, we got on the trip to Paris. There's a relatively young independent brand called Charlie of Paris. And they have a boutique there in Paris. Kendall and I, while we were cruising around the Notre Dame area, got to stop by and check out their watches. And we each ended up picking up a watch. We got his and her watches. And I think part of the real selling point was that their logo is a stork, which ah. felt very appropriate for an OBGYN conference. Might even be a tax-deductible accessory then. Yeah, I think I saw a Facebook post with the two of you sporting... Not matching watches, but both very attractive, uh, kind of elegant-looking Charlie watches. So that was that, apparently. Yeah, 100% tax-deductible. I mean, it's, it's clearly a professional expense. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a thing that I used to be able to do for conferences in the U.S. because these micro-brand watches are popping up uh, all over the country. Uh, kind of like the craft beer scene, where every major city had a, a, you know, a few craft beers. Many cities now have uh, their own watch brand. And so when I be giving a, a invited lecture at a conference, say, in Nashville or Austin. Uh, I'd pick up a watch from, from those places. So it was kind of fun that it could uh, continue in, in Paris. Well, I just have to ask, why is the stork their logo? Does it have anything to do with babies and things? 
I think they were trying to appeal to the OBGYN market. (laughs) (laughs) We did. I did ask them that. And there's a story on their website and they had a story in person. I'm not going to quite get it exactly word for word, but the the essence was that it is a, at least in, in France culture, it's kind of a symbol of freedom. And they're an independent brand and independent thinking. And it was tied into that kind of independent and freedom motif. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it on you. Yeah. We'll bring it over to the next uh, Green Docs party. So how about you, Bruce? You got a big trip to Australia coming up. Is that first and foremost on your mind or other things are going on? Yeah, I'm in the pre-travel sprint mode to get this podcast recorded and, and get my packing list down and start checking on whether that I'll be getting to adjust to you know we're getting into fall here and they're just ramping up their springtime so i'm going to go right back into uh, i think some pretty warm temperatures and i also got an app to help me manage the time zone transitions since i've got to be up on my feet and giving a couple of really important lectures to a large audience of obgyns uh, at this meeting and i i want to be able to complete a sentence yeah the time zone transitions are the math is is one thing, but setting your calendar, I found, was really difficult preparing for an international trip because you'll put everything, say, in one time zone, and you have to almost convert your calendar to figure out what your day is going to be like. Something you have scheduled Wednesday morning will appear on your home calendar Tuesday evening. Do you have an app that helps with that, your itinerary? No, uh, but my calendar, I think, on my Mac will adjust itself as I travel. So I think it'll it'll write the ship will be righted time wise once I land there, and it knows where we are. Anyway, I I think I'm pretty clear about where I really have to be in terms of flights and and lectures and things like that. But the really exciting challenge is adapting to different time zones. And I've got this cool new app called Time Shifter that actually will have me begin to adjust my sleep and wake times and use melatonin and otherwise adjust some of my habits starting tomorrow, even though I don't leave until two days after that. So hopefully when I get to Perth, things will will be uh, adaptable in a fairly short time. Have you taken melatonin for flights before or just as a sleep aid? I have. Yes, I have. And and I actually take it on nearly a nightly basis anyway. So I'll be upping the dose and changing the timing a bit. But it's a very useful, natural supplement to help with sleep. Yeah, I took it once on a flight to Abu Dhabi. And it was when they had the first kind of round of uh, food service. So I had melatonin, a glass of wine, and woke up eight hours later in Abu Dhabi. It worked like a charm. <laughs> Beautiful. Hard to know whether it was the wine or the melatonin. I, I have not heard them recommended simultaneously, but but it sounds like it worked. It, it worked. It worked here. So, what are we talking about in in the headline? What's uh, how 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 can we tie in the environment to our national deficit? Well, first of all, the budget deficits. Wearing my other hat as head of the of the. <laughs> <laughs> I got no other hat. I don't understand deficits and these federal budgets at all. It's an extremely complex topic. But there was actually a pretty reassuring analysis from the Brookings Institute that was actually titled, No Need to Panic About the Budget Deficit. But they did note that the primary driver this year to our rising deficit is a fall in revenue compared to the past couple of years, I guess probably tied into the pandemic and all. But another major contributor to the budget is rising spending on healthcare, especially Medicare and Medicaid. And per Dr. Drew Schindel, who is a researcher at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University in North Carolina, 
and he reported this information to Congress, if we reduce emissions to below 2 degrees centigrade, it will save over $700 billion annually in reduced healthcare spending and, and increased labor productivity. We're talking about things like less exposure to extreme weather, less exposure to heat and heat waves, and air pollution. So win-wins all the way around, and we're not even talking about preventing all kinds of premature deaths. That's where they tie in. Nothing more dangerous than an armchair economist. I learned this in my time uh, studying at, at Penn and uh, with Wharton professors. There's so many complexities to it that you, you really, this is an area where, where expertise needs to shine. But I think it, it's worthwhile for us to highlight a few parts to this story that people can go in and, and do reading from the experts. There was a report from University of Pennsylvania, the uh, Global Climate Finance Workshop from last year. And they evaluated green versus what they call brown assets. And you know, as expected, it's, it's more complicated than just one is good and one is bad. Overall, greener assets performed lower than expected, they found. However, they also had higher realized returns in times of crisis, uh, which of course is happening frequently now. And the, the conclusion was that overall, being green will reduce the cost of capital for an asset. And just from pure market forces, even if you didn't care about you know, environmental or eco considerations at all, that would be a positive factor to invest in them. So uh, we'll include the, the report in our, in our links for the show, but overall, it, it did show a robust future for green investments. I'm not surprised. And of course, we're rooting for them anyway, because of all kinds of other side benefits. But yeah, I think as Rhonda Carnegie pointed out in our last episode, if you follow the money, we will see people, regardless of their, their ideological identity, transitioning to more green investments over time because of things like the Infrastructure Act and just other trends that are going on that are going to drive more returns on that side. More to be said about this topic as we go forward, for sure. Yeah. But you had another headline that made me chuckle. So, <laughs> yeah. Speaking <laughs> of about speaking that. of transitioning, you know, uh, I, if, like Monty Python said, and now for something completely different. Yeah. Had you heard about this at all? Uh, that in Australia you can induce a crocodile orgy with a low flying helicopter. You know, I've often wondered about that, but uh, <laughs> I didn't see a report about it. How the heck did you find that headline? Well, I, part of this was, uh, you know, really a, a personal service to you just to be aware of one other thing that can happen in Australia where they say, uh, you know, basically everything is trying to kill you. But it, it came across my headline from some it just searches around like the ecology and connection to reproduction. Also, I have to give a shout out to Kendall, who is always scouring the latest social media sources and, and, and feeds uh, interesting headlines. I mean, it sounds like an outrageous story, and it is. But the reason I mentioned it here was that they believe the reason that this low-flying helicopter affected crocodile behavior at all, let alone this mating frenzy, was because the, the winds generated by the helicopter and the sounds and the vibrations, they think all basically simulated a thunderstorm. And crocodiles are known to mate when there are thunderstorms, because in the seasonality of it, the time when the babies will be born will be a safer time in the climate. So you're supposed to look like they've learned that you, you mate during thunderstorm season because then the offspring come out in a safer season to it. 
Well, I'm sure this kind of information will have all kinds of ramifications in our personal lives, uh, but I'm not exactly sure what they are just yet. Uh, do you tie this story into any other sort of uh, animal orgy mating behavior that you've heard of, or is this a one-off? <laughs> well, I can't get into the uh, orgy part of it, but uh, yes, I also wanted to to flag it as you know the interesting, maybe headline-grabbing tie into another article that was uh, released recently in the Atlantic by Catherine Wu about seasonal changes in human birthing patterns. For many, many decades, uh, centuries perhaps even, there's been a seasonality to when babies are born, uh, especially in certain regions. And I think every OB can relate to this. You know, I mean, we, we, we know that September and October, where we are right now, are typically the busiest months. That, that bump, baby bump begins late summer and kind of concludes early fall. But the article was saying that that baby bump has smoothed recently, partially due to more technology coming into conception. So more things like uh, IVF and assisted reproduction. Also, there's just kind of um, more medicine around around birth control. And so the, the article is kind of calling attention to a, a change in in our our human patterns of, of birthing seasons. Makes sense. It's becoming something we intervene on more, and the natural tendencies are therefore being sort of uh, accompanied by or, or even overshadowed a bit by the impact that we're having on our own reproductive cycles. Yeah, and it was kind of a parathetical mention in the article, but I, but I think it is worth discussing here, and again, providing links to think people can dig in more on their own. There even was a correlation between heat and success of say, uh, certain fertility cycles so that, you know, humans, maybe consciously or not, for a while had been avoiding conception during the really, really hot times. And even in modern studies, the weather around fertility cycles, it can improve your odds if it's not extremely hot at the time. So okay. a, a story to follow and definitely report back to us if you have any tours in Australia that involve helicopters. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, you know, foreign foreign solutions or foreign uh, stories in, in the environmental space. Tell me about these Japanese bacteria that eat plastic. Well, I'm not sure they are Japanese bacteria, but they were found in Japan. And actually, The Guardian reported that these bacteria were discovered just incidentally by some Japanese microbiologists. And they were able to convert plastic in whatever form, plastic bottles, plastic other things in the trash stream, into food. They were able to extract the carbon out of them. And it's kind of a recurring theme on this program. We keep talking about how nature has this incredible wisdom, and so many times we go to great extents to try to discover uh, some kind of a solution to a problem that nature really has already figured out. And of course, the problem, as we have also mentioned, with plastic pollution is huge. We generate nearly 400 million tons of plastic annually worldwide. And of course, none of it breaks down. And we even talked about how it can end up in breast milk and other organs of our body. But uh, currently what's going on with this is that scientists are working to boost the power of the enzyme the bacteria had somehow created so that it works faster. And also, there's a whole new species of scientists now known as bioprospectors that are going around looking in various places in the world for bacteria that have already evolved this enzyme or have a different enzyme that works even better and faster. There is some progress even commercially now. And again, it's been 20 years since this bacteria was first discovered. But there's a company in France that uses this enzyme to break down about half a ton of plastic every day and turn it into new plastic. 
the use of this enzyme is enabling actual plastic recycling for the first time. Well, we should be talking to a bioprospector. This sounds like a really fascinating field of, of study. So it sounds like this is already seeing some real-world applications. Did the article or does, does the reporting mention if this is being scaled? I mean, can we expect to see this here in the U.S. sometime soon? Well, they don't have anything more than, than uh, just uh, hope and projections at this point. But as I say, industry is well underway. They see the potential for this to work not only in terms of environmental benefit, but also commercially. And there is that one French company that's having some success. But yeah, it's nowhere near scaled at this point. But given all the money and the benefits from this, uh, I have no doubt that we will see this at some point, in the, hopefully in the near future. And it would be great to actually see some real progress. I think, though, it doesn't skip over our need to reduce the use of plastics in general and all petroleum products, which we'll certainly talk about more during the interview today. But it always fascinates me to see nature figure things out despite our best efforts, much more elegantly than we could ever do on our own. And it also reminds me of a story that came up frequently in my residency and training where we kind of all came around to the to this bias that it was better not to operate on somebody if you really didn't need to because nature is so much of a better surgeon and a healer than we could ever be. So to me, this is just another page in that chapter. I, I kept waiting for you to do your natural Jeff Goldblum impersonation <laughs> with a uh, life finds a way. Well, you're in charge of imitations on this show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the most quotable lines from any movie, perhaps, but uh, one of the good ones from Jurassic Park. In just a minute, we'll be back with our interview with Adam Aaron. And uh, again, you won't find a more candid voice on Climate Solutions. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Adam Aaron. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego. He's the author of a new book, The Climate Crisis, Science, Impacts, Policy, Psychology, Justice, Social Movements. Oh, my. And he's one of the leading voices <laughs> of speaking truth to power. Adam, welcome to the Green Docs. Thanks so much for having me, Bruce and Nate. We're really happy to have you. And every time I hear UC San Diego, it brings back all the pleasant memories that I had of being a student there. I was at Ravel College where uh, I found a path to getting into medical school and also had just an amazing time. So I'm always happy when we have really good professors. And it seems like you've had quite a busy time of late. Yes, I have. I've shifted my career away from being a neuroscientist to focusing on the climate and ecological crisis. And that's uh, been quite a ride in the last few years. We want to hear all about that, but I think you just recently came back from an East Coast tour. I did, yes. So I've written this book called The Climate Crisis, which is really the sort of summation of my knowledge and experience from teaching undergrads for four years. And I really wanted to get out there and, and talk to other schools about the book, talk about our activism in the UC system, and learn more about the energy transition around the country. So I took a train all the way across through Chicago to Boston, and I was visiting a number of the schools and talking with professors and activists and energy experts. And so that was a, an interesting time. And was this a train tour part of a statement about carbon footprints? Yes. I mean, in the sense that I haven't been on a plane except for twice since 2019, which is some inconvenience to my family, of course, and I will do it occasionally. But in general, I, I feel I need to walk the talk. And 
it isn't just walking the talk. I mean, I didn't make a lot, a big point about it on my trip. If people asked me about it, I brought it up. But it's more to do with like, I can't bear the idea of getting on a, a plane and thinking about damaging the biosphere by emitting something like a half a ton or a ton of CO2 each time. So it's sort of personal, you know, it feels like a conviction for me. And conviction has been, I remember uh, from hearing you speak, a, a big part of your origin story in working in the climate crisis. Often there's a phrase that said, you know, follow the money. But you are, you're in a unique position where you acted on conviction and turned down quite a bit of money to do your current work. Is that, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, I suppose that's one way to think about it is around about 2018, 2019, I really started stepping up my engagement as an activist and organizer and teacher on the climate and ecological crisis. And I was really a neuroscientist in my career and I had a whole research lab. And, and as I started doing more and more climate and you know focused stuff, I started doing less and less neuroscience. And at some point, 2021, I was about to get the latest installment of my National Institutes of Health grant, which was something like $355,000. And I said, I don't, I don't want this, please take it back again. So I sent the money back to NIH. And that, I guess, was the definitive moment in which I realized, like, I wasn't going to do neuroscience anymore. I bet you they don't get a lot of grants returned, particularly grants at that size. You must have uh, raised a few eyebrows at NIH. Uh, yes, yes. And then it makes me ask, as we all, we've talked about our own personal awakenings on this show. And when we, when we became so concerned that it really became a dominant feature of our lives to work on climate do you remember when the light bulb came on for you and you realized what a, a an existential threat this was or is? Yes, uh, to some extent, uh, there was a light bulb moment, but it was also a slow process. You know, I think I was, I can't quite remember when I first became aware. I mean, I think intuitively, even in the 1990s, I understood uh, that something was really wrong about the way we were carrying on. And I knew about uh, heating, global heating, or global warming, we called it then, and I knew about the greenhouse gas effect. I remember seeing Al Gore's movie in the early 2000s. And I think I was just so busy in my career and being a parent and focused that I, I wasn't engaged, but it sort of became more and more of a concern as time went on. And in 2015, 2016, I got involved with the fossil fuel divestment movement at the University of California, and so I was suddenly trying to do something. But I don't think the penny really dropped, Bruce, until... I sat down, I think it was 2018, with that IPCC, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, the 1.5 report. And that was the first time I really sat down and thought, let, let me actually look at what the scientists are saying. And I was, that was a light bulb moment for me, as it was for quite a lot of people. And I, I thought, oh, my God. And, of course, what I understood actually after that was that a lot of that is a gross underestimate. You know, it's quite conservative the way they frame things. So maybe we can talk about that later. Well, you're absolutely right, and I think that that has been a, a trailing story for so many of these reports is that as alarming as they are, they are actually downplaying the risks. And unfortunately, reality keeps proving that to us, that, that the estimates of harm are actually being exceeded on a regular basis. So far from scientists being alarmists, they're actually trying to make best-case scenario predictions so often, which may not be the best thing in the world. Yes, Adam, we met at, at the H3 Summit at, at, down at UC San Diego, and I got a chance to read your book. And uh, it, it was a really interesting roller coaster because uh, you, you end up being both terrified and still somehow optimistic by the end. So I was wondering if we could go through some of the, the terms it, that you define in your book and as a starting point to kind of get through it. 
And the first one I, I really want to hear about is uh, astroturfing. Oh, astroturfing. Well, so astroturfing is where, so that comes up in the context of misinformation. For example, investor-owned utilities like SDG&E, PG&E, SoCal Edison, they can make out that there's a lot more support for the policies that they want to see implemented in the state of California by providing money to small groups. And the small groups have, you know, names like, you know, Citizens for Good Electricity or Citizens for <laughs> Direct Access to Electricity or something like that. Um, and it might just be, you know, an empty door in a building with nothing behind it. That's what astroturfing is. And do you see a lot of this in public communication as a way of companies trying to provide some virtue signaling and make it look like they are they're eco-friendly when really that the work is not being done? Well, you see it in the context of the fossil fuel industry and investor-owned utilities and all sorts of you know, political concerns in the United States. You want to make out that there's a, a grassroots movement supporting you. You conjure up these entities with, with names, but there's really very little behind it. Sounds remarkably similar to the tobacco industry and their efforts to cloud their message, no pun intended. It is an awfully important aspect for us to be aware of. And then there's the term that more people probably have heard of, of greenwashing. How big a problem is that? And what do you think people should know about oil companies that tell you that are really working on renewable energy? Yeah, I think green, greenwashing is a really important term an important thing for people to understand. I would discuss greenwashing not so much in terms of oil companies, or we can get to that, but just in terms of our institutions, our universities, our hospitals, our corporations, people work for Google and Microsoft and University of California and Kaiser Permanente. And so greenwashing is an approach that, let's just call it institutions take, where they pose as being climate saviors. They make out that they have action or they're doing action and it's not exactly outright lying, but it's, it deflects and, and makes people feel all is well in hand. And what greenwashing really means is that you're, you are, the institution is doing something, but the thing it's doing is completely inadequate relative to the scale of the problem. So I can give you some examples. The University of California posed for over 10 years as having a great climate action plan and was being a leader, all the while emitting over a million tons a year of carbon dioxide from burning fossil gas called natural gas, but it's really methane, fossil gas is what it is. They claimed they were a big leader because they were going to be carbon neutral in 2025. So this is a, it turns out, a major form of greenwashing because what that actually meant was they were going, they promised they would buy carbon offsets one day. And carbon offsets, if you look into it, are just a total, an almost complete scam in every sense. So that's a form of greenwashing, right? Because what the institution actually should be doing is getting off the gas, actually making the investments to stop burning fossil gas and damaging the atmosphere or the biosphere. And instead, what it's doing is it's proposing another kind of quote-unquote solution, which is something that is simply inadequate to do that. That's a nice example of greenwashing, I think. You work with a, a lot of college students in your career who, it seems this, this generation is very motivated to, to do work on climate. Do you see them being able to distinguish between messages that have greenwashing and messages that, that really would, in your opinion, uh, make an impact as far as curbing our trajectory toward, toward global warming? I think not just students, but I think the wider society is uh, not well educated on this and people are very confused. So apart from institutions doing greenwashing, as you alluded to earlier, uh, the fossil fuel industry and other entities are doing so as well. 
Um, they promise us carbon capture and sequestration storage. They promise us hydrogen as a solution. And I think that, um, you know, people are walking around poorly informed about what really constitutes serious action. Serious action is leaving fossil fuels on the ground in all the ways that we might perhaps talk about. And, and that's what needs to be primarily done. There's, there's another point, another thing I want to link to here in the sort of greenwashing theme, which is, I, I don't know if this is appropriately called perhaps gaslighting, but I think it's a form of greenwashing, which is that, you know, in our schools, and I have young children in San Diego Unified School District, and I know what goes on. They, they you know, go to class and they come back and there's an environment club and I'm like, well, what are you doing? And the 10-year-old says to me, you're never going to believe this, Dad. We're going to go and do a beach cleanup for God's sake. Because he understands, uh, if I can speak like that, beach cleanups are, in a way, for me, worse than doing nothing, as is the focus, perhaps, on single-use plastic. Plastic's made from oil, and we need to deal with plastics, and we should have legislation in California. But, you know, focusing on plastics as if you're doing climate action is completely missing the point. And doing beach cleanups, I think, is refocusing people's concern about the planet and the energy they have to actually get them to do something that makes absolutely no contact with the core problem, which is this is a, a struggle, basically, with powerful vested interests that are burning fossil fuels. And I want to push back a little bit, Adam, because I do think that, and I've engaged in beach cleanups and used to help run an organization here in Del Mar where we got people out on a regular basis. I know we weren't we weren't solving any major problems, but I do think that getting people engaged at any level to addressing environmental crises is kind of a gateway drug because generally speaking, people enjoy those experiences oftentimes more than they think they will. And it leads them to be willing to participate more rather than less as a result. So I get your point about how it's insufficient and in a way can be falsely reassuring. But I also think if you, if you talk about it correctly and if you make those sorts of invitations a way for people to get involved, it can have long-term benefit. I also want to ask about carbon offsets because I'm flying to Australia in a few days to give a couple of talks and I bought offsets for my plane flight and I've been doing that consistently. And I, I look to a so-called certified offset provider, a company called TerraPass, because they do seem to have good intentions behind it. And I, I haven't been convinced yet that, that that's a worthless thing to do. They invest in protecting forests, also landfill gas projects, and, and things that seem like, although certainly they don't make a huge impact, for the long term, they're, they're better than doing nothing. Would you, would you say otherwise? Let me just address the first uh, point. I, I think you expressed that very well, Bruce, and I do agree with the way you said that about the beach cleanups. Okay, well, caveat. If organizations that are promoting beach cleanups are clear with people and that this is a way of getting engagement, but when you join the beach cleanup, you're getting with a group and develop a sense of efficacy, and then there's a next step, and we're not just doing the beach cleanup and we encourage you to go further, and that's kind of built in, I think that is very good. You're right. People need a small little thing to get activated. But I, I don't think it generally functions like that. So the carbon offsets thing, well, let's let's think about your particular TerraPass issue. Well, by the way, what I'd say, first of all, Bruce, is the following. Don't buy offsets. You know, if you really need to fly to Australia, if that's a very important thing to do, then fly to Australia and arrive there and tell them, I'm not happy 
that I had to damage the biosphere. I am, you know, a privileged individual that has now emitted, you know, two tons of CO2, which is something like 100 times more than a Tanzanian would in the entire year. But this was important for me to be here. You should celebrate that I'm here with you. This was a special thing I did. I own my emissions. <laughs> okay, that's, that's the thing to do. And to fly less, and to fly less, and to commit to flying less, and, and think about it intentionally, and not just do it trivially. Back to Terrapass. You know, this is a long thing about the problems with carbon offsets. Let's just start from the following perspective. Do you know how much you're paying per ton? It's not much. I, I'm always surprised. It's probably about $15. Okay, so so for your t return trip to Australia, you're probably paying $15 or $20. Now let's think for a minute about whether that could possibly be enough to actually take that, carbon, that ton of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in some other way. Let's consider the only known example of direct air capture on planet Earth, which is the plant that was built in Iceland, cost about $20 million. They're using geothermal energy to power it. This is a set of devices that is literally pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and sequestering it supposedly underground for a long period of time, about $600 a ton, four to $600 a ton. So that's a, that's a device that literally removes a ton of carbon dioxide. It costs four to $600. Now, we can immediately see now that the $15 you're paying Terrapass can't possibly be doing anything at that scale. Then there's all the issues of additionality. If you're paying for uh, you know, methane gas from a landfill, well, can you be sure that that wouldn't have been done anyway? Any project on planet Earth that actually has the capacity or potential to remove carbon dioxide or prevent from carbon dioxide from being released must and should be funded that we shouldn't be paying money for that instead of cutting our emissions ourselves. We should cut our emissions ourselves and support the projects that can get it done. So offsets is an issue of additionality, of uncertainty. There are so many studies done that are highly reputable now in published journals that the whole question of forest offsets is deeply problematic. Forests get protected and they burn down. Forests get protected and indigenous tribes then move and start or not indigenous tribes, but other people then start logging from the adjacent area. It's called carbon leakage. So anyway, it's it's kind of a long story, but the fundamental problem is they are way too small cost to do anything practically up to the scale of the problem. They are almost impossible to evaluate that they're additional and they're often uncertain. So I'll leave it at that. No, I really appreciate your candor, Adam, because uh, that's why we wanted you to be on this podcast was to really, you know, kind of cut through all the BS and, and give us some core truths. When, when I hear these, these carbon offset discussions like you just had, it, it reminds me a little, an analogy uh, reminds me of how we often talk about uh, some dietary counseling. You know, we're both, Bruce and I are both physicians, so we deal with nutrition a lot. And I saw for, for a while, and, and probably still currently, a lot of focus on diet products, you know, like, like diet Coke and diet uh, whatever. And you'd see somebody, you know, order at a, at a, fast food place, a double bacon cheeseburger, large fries. Oh, but, but, but a diet Coke, you know, and, and it's like, <laughs> you, you probably would be better off. Like you're saying, just, just have the Coke, have, have the soda, but, but rarely, you know, very rarely and, and own it when it happens. And the idea is to reduce it overall. Is, is that kind of a, a fair analogy that, that we're trying to really just cut back calories, cut back carbon emissions all around. And it actually, if, if you're seeing some of these, um, maybe more disguised mechanisms on a regular basis, it, it actually could, could be hurting. Is that about right? 
Yes, well, I think there's a few different things buried in what you're asking me there. And part of this, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable talking about this stuff like Bruce's aviation because I don't want to come across as some kind of deeply moralistic person castigating other people here. You know, this is difficult stuff. And I don't think there's right answers here necessarily. Each of us has to kind of grapple with this. You know, we live in the society we do with this very high throughput consumption and the careers we have and the privilege we have. And it's a tough problem to know how to deal with this. Okay, so I don't have all the answers. Some of what you touched on there, Nate, I mean, I think, first of all, there should be some truthfulness. Um, there should be some people, people need to be clear about where the problem really lies and what kinds of things matter. You know, I was reminded recently that we tried in 2019, uh, several of us, to create a petition for the Society for Neuroscience, which is an absolutely enormous meeting. 30,000 people a year, almost all jumping on airplanes and flying off to this large meeting. And and we pushed and pushed, and we got 1,100 people to support this petition. And the, eventually, the leadership did respond to us. And their promise was absolutely not to change anything about the meeting or to reduce the size of the meeting or to create a hub and spokes model or to move the meeting to once every two years, which would actually cut emissions in half, which is what we need to be doing even more now. They made it about the lanyards, the plastic lanyards at the meeting would be, you know, recyclable. So um, <laughs> I think I think to your point, Nate, it's sort of, and, and to Bruce's point about the aviation, you know, it's sort of like clear eyes, clear eyes on how one's own actions and one's institution actions really are damaging the biosphere. That the University of California is about fundamentally emitting carbon dioxide from fossil gas burning. If it's going to be serious about climate action, if we're serious about climate action, we can do all sorts of small things that might be important, but we also have to have the eyes on the main thing. And I think your example of the Diet Coke and the beef burger are a little bit like that. This person is not being honest with themselves about the real the real sources of anything. <laughs> Although I think the Diet Coke is, yes, I mean, yes, yes. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a psychological, um, you're trying to let yourself off the hook. Yeah. Yeah, it's an indulgence. It's an indulgence, right? Yeah. I, I do want to give a, a quick shout out to our international OBGYN society uh, who has made their World Congress every two years, uh, to your point. So we, we don't have a meeting every year. Do you think part of this problem is that people don't understand the true scope of the problem, of the challenge we're facing? And I ask this because I want to come back to something you said earlier about conservative estimates in, in some of the reports that you had read. And one of the other items defined in your book about bounded uncertainty versus irreducible uncertainty. Do, do you think people are are maybe just not quite aware of the urgency of the challenge we're facing? Yes, I think they're not aware. I think it's uh, right on. Yes. So there's a couple of things I could say about this. Well, first of all, I think, I mean, I don't know what everyone thinks, but the general impression I get is readers of the New York Times and the mainstream media in the United States, for example, which is lots of people, people we know, have certainly developed a sense of worry right? And grown adults, it's not just sort of the youth that are climate anxious. People have got the message that something very dramatic is happening on planet Earth, and they are quite disconcerted by it. And uh, on my big train trip travel to the east, I met a number of people there who'd been affected by the wildfires. And these are well-to-do professor types who are quite alarmed and quite frightened by having the sky like that for three weeks, and they have to stay inside or wear a mask. They start to have heat waves, uh, nothing like what we what happened in the Pacific Northwest or what we will experience elsewhere in the world. But still, uh, apparently in Philadelphia, low-income low people without air conditioning had to be rescued by the fire department. 
So people start to cotton on to the fact that something very alarming is happening to planet Earth, and so they are kind of worried about it. But I think they don't know enough to recognize how fast this goes, how it may go, how it will unfold. I mean, and they don't recognize the urgency of what needs to happen in what time scale, partly because they're being confused about that in several ways. Yeah. Well, I think there's the question about, yeah, what people in, in your experience don't know but ought to know about our trajectories for global warming. And maybe in a kind of ironic sense, the phrase that, that might be in play here is one that is familiar to people as a term, but maybe not well defined, which is uh, the concept of a tipping point. Yes, indeed. So, you know, by the way, I'm not a climate scientist myself, but I've grappled with these issues for a few years. And I think I have a sort of enough of an understanding about some core issues and certainly perhaps what people do and don't know based, based on teaching hundreds of students to speak on this, I think, with some authority. Um, and I know uh, many climate scientists who I consult with on these matters, right, and, and dissident climate scientists who are outside of the, the main bodies that are often constrained to be quite conservative. So there's a few things that I think people don't know in general. First of all, the 1.5C target is still talked about, right? People, this is sort of dangled in front of us as if it was still possible to keep heating to 1.5. And that's decision makers and elites and mayors and all sorts of people still talk about that. Even some scientists still talk about that. Now, there is no way we're going to keep heating to 1.5. There should be a leveling with the wider population. It's an absolute cliff now. We would have to be cutting emissions at 12 or 13% per annum. It would be like the COVID-19 pandemic every year, that size of contraction till 2030 or something, it's not going to happen. So we're, we're headed to two Celsius. And two Celsius, depending on what our behavior is like, right? It, let's just assume we move to a medium emissions pathway from the high one we're on. Well, we're going to hit two Celsius in less than 30 years from now. Well, so I don't think people know what that means, that all the coral reefs will be dead, for example, and there's an exponential increase of extreme weather events and so forth. What two Celsius actually entails from an impact point of view is not well understood. And then, of course, there's the, the, the physical tipping points you referred to, Nate. And I don't think this is well understood either and hardly mentioned. And it really should be headline news all the time, which is what tipping points refers to is that, you know, right now we're like a little boat going down the river, humanity, and we could deflect to the side. Uh, there's probably some amount of heating built in no matter what we do. And no one knows how much that is, by the way. It might be, if we completely cut emissions, it might be nothing, or it might be half a degree Celsius. But presumably, you don't have to have hothouse planet this century. Now, the problem with, is if we carry on down the river with the emissions at the scale that we are doing, and of course, the Biden administration has escalated fossil extraction now at colossal levels, if all of that is realized, we're carrying on down the river, then we risk the, the unfolding of what are called runaway feedbacks, which is related to the tipping point. The little boat goes over the edge of the waterfall. And these runaway feedbacks are now incurred that's going to make it probably very impossible for us to reverse course. So an example of runaway feedback is the permafrost thaw, which perhaps some of your listeners have heard of, which is that there's an enormous amount of organic matter buried in Alaska and Siberia, for example. And as the ice thaws, it exposes uh, the, the carbon of the organic matter to the air and it decomposes releases methane, which is 88 times as potent a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. So that will produce a lot more global heating, which will produce a lot more thawing and a lot more global heating, and that's the runaway feedback aspect. Science has looked into this, and that's our best guide to reality, and so we could say, well, when is this process really going to accelerate? And the answer is, well, about now, until as late as 2.3 Celsius, which will be decades in the future, 
But the best estimate, the central estimate of all the modeling is about 1.5. Now, what, where are we going now? We're going to break through 1.5 in a sustained fashion, not just one year. We probably broke through 1.5 this year already, by the way. But in a sustained fashion, around 2030, 2032. All right. Now, that means not that game over planet Earth. It doesn't mean a huge methane bomb goes off, but it means that's when this process really might start accelerating that will unfold over decades. That, for me, imposes an enormous urgency for us to really move on this issue now in the five to ten year time frame. Um, we need to absolutely make the transition, and perhaps we'll be talking about this right now, to get off fossil fuels in, in California, to electrify everything, to electrify transit, all the things we might talk about now, not in 2050. And so aside from the problem that the wider public doesn't understand that 1.5 is dead, they don't understand what two Celsius would mean, that they probably don't generally understand the concept of physical tipping points and the urgency they impose. Even worse than all of that, they hear the language of carbon neutrality and net zero in 2040 and 2060, and they're lulled into a kind of sleepiness that everything is in hand, that we've got this people. And so we can talk more about that if you like, but I think the concepts of net zero is another deeply problematic aspect. We really need to be moving towards zero, not net. And what net zero has come to function as is a propaganda exercise of kicking the can down the road. People are, are led to think that it's okay, we're going to do these huge removals some long time in the future, so it's okay for us to keep emitting right now, and, and that's not. There are so many things you're making me think of, but I keep coming back to, I think, as we get near the end here, to wanting your recommendations for what a kid can do at UCSD, who you talk to, and what a, somebody who you know, works in a bank can do, people maybe not with all the resources or time in the world, how can people be part of this solution at the speed at which we need it? I would answer by sort of saying there's two parts. There's sort of your individual actions and there's joining groups, group actions. Okay, so on the individual front, you can be a good communicator, I think, and that partly requires being educated on this issue to some extent, expressing your concern to people around you, modeling with your own behavior, changes that you make, flying less and telling people why you're flying less, turning down the beef occasionally or reducing the beef eating. The animal agriculture is 13% of worldwide emissions. The beef especially, it's absolutely colossal. So if everybody reduced their consumption, they don't have to never eat beef again. But so being, being a modeler yourself, being a communicator yourself is one thing. Practically speaking, individuals in a place like California, probably not students so much, but people that are homeowners, absolutely should electrify their homes. You can totally get off the gas. You can have a gas water heater. You can have heat pumps. Uh, you can uh, have an induction stove, uh, and it'll actually uh, save you money on the longer run. And there's actually it, rebates for this kind of thing now. If you have to do heating, it's a much more expensive issue, but that we don't have that here so much. You can shift your personal banking. I think people need to recognize that the main banks, Chase, Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, are the worst, those four to collect collectively have financed fossil extraction by the tune of $2 trillion since the Paris Accords. Because the big uh, oil and gas and, and tar sands and drilling in the Gulf need, have huge capital requirements and such. So they go to the banks for financing. And those are our dollars you know, that, that give the finance. So you personally can shift your banking out of those to a local credit union that has almost no exposure. That's called stopping the money pipeline. So there's a range of actions people can take in the home that I think are are totally are very good. And of course, if people do that at scale, it starts to be very significant as it is with the EV uptake now. But beyond these individual things, Bruce, 
it's absolutely essential for people to realize that they need to get with group action, they need to get with collective action. And just to give you a concrete example, obviously you can start riding your bike a lot more in parts of San Diego, as many of us are doing, and that's healthy and fun, but it's completely insignificant compared to the diesel chugging truck next to you from an atmosphere point of view. But if you get together with three or 400 people in the bike coalition or bike SD, and you clamor for bike lanes, and as they did here in my neighborhood, and you push against the city council, my God, you have bike lanes now, and that literally makes traffic go down, and that becomes a thing the atmosphere cares about. Likewise, if you're shifting out of those banks and you let all your friends and family know and you get coordinated with a few tens of thousands of people doing the same thing at the same time, my God, that becomes the kind of action that matters. So people have to kind of get reacquainted with the idea that they have to somehow connect with group action, even if it's only five or 10 minutes a week. And that's up to you. You've got to find out what the group is. If it's just talking to a legislator just for, for you know once a month, or sending emails through in synchronization with 10,000 other people, or it's actually organizing locally in your neighborhood, that is really what counts now. Getting to city council. Physicians can put on white coats and go and stand in front of decision makers and speak about air pollution. Incredibly impactful. So whatever career one's in, as an architect or a teacher or a physician or an engineer, almost everybody outside or inside of their own institution need to band together and add their voices for the policies we need. And so when you get with a group and you share your values and concerns and you start acting and getting involved with social change, it feels very good. You get reacquainted with some deeper sense of humanity. And I think people need to see that as a positive thing. And whatever the problems we have, and they are numerous, we're only going to be able to deal with them through people that are organized together and have a sense of community. So we need to build that and build it around the climate crisis is a good place to start. Well, I think we're going to need uh, regular reminders of this. So, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. And I think we'll need uh, repeat episodes every, every so often. Thank you so much for having me, guys. That was an amazing and certainly in-depth discussion, and he made so many incredible points. I really enjoyed talking to Adam. Nate, what do you take away from that? What do you think people need to know? Yeah, I mean, as I said at the beginning of the interview, uh, the book describes uh, a roller coaster of being both terrified and at the end somehow still uplifted by the message. I think if you're someone who really values core truths, you know, that, that wants to cut through all the kind of nonsense messaging that, that we know happens and just get to what really matters, you could probably re-listen to Adam's interview a few times and, and take kernels away. I think the message that came through loud and clear was leave the fossil fuels in the ground, uh, leave the fossils in the ground as much as possible. So any step that you're doing toward that goal is productive, is helping solve this, this crisis. It's not the only thing to do, and it's not that the other things are unimportant. You know, there are other reasons to say avoid plastic in your food and your Tupperware and your how you consume liquids. But really getting to the core of the issue would be leaving these fossil fuels in the ground. So I think a number of the um, individual and collective actions that Adam listed would all be there already for listeners. And it did motivate me to be more aware of my personal decision making on any number of these daily activities whether it's travel, which personally I have reduced lately, whether it's using the electric part of my uh, hybrid car to <laughs> use less gas, or even, you know, just 
you know, being, being conscious of how much electricity I can use around the house as opposed to other, other means of uh, power. How about you, Bruce? Well, those are all really good points. Yeah. And I think I want to reinforce something about that, which is that one of the main pushbacks about that sort of transition in lifestyle, so to speak, has been, a, but it's too expensive. And I think we need to keep reminding each other and ourselves that that is in large part, it's no longer true. And I mean, I remember the days when the very first LED light bulbs came out and I was actually being the eco nerd that I am. I went out and bought a couple of them and they were $60 a piece, but I just thought they were so amazing because here's a light bulb that uses 90% less energy and it doesn't heat up. And so you could actually touch it when it was on. And these things just were really kind of thrilling to me. But now if you go out and buy LED light bulbs, they are as cheap or cheaper than the incandescence if you can even find an old school incandescent bulb anymore. So those transitions and so-called economies of scale, when people really start to pick these things up and make them a part of their lives, they really kick in pretty fast. In so many instances, it is cost beneficial. I've been driving electric for more than 10 years now, and, and gas has gotten supremely expensive, and people love to complain about it. But electric cars have all kinds of financial benefits. They're, they're so much simpler internally. So much less maintenance has to be done and so many fewer things need to be replaced. So there's a win-win side to making these transitions. And the old idea that it's too expensive to do this is just progressively being shown to be not only incorrect, but the opposite is often true. Yeah. Okay. So what about for our physician colleagues? What, what can they take away from this interview? Well, what I remembered when Adam was talking was uh, actually the words of V. Wynn, who's a pediatrician that we featured on one of our earlier interviews uh, at the Heat Summit. And V. basically said about climate change that once you know this problem, you can't unknow it. And I think it's particularly true if you practice medicine because you're science-based and you tend towards compassion and thinking about other people. Once you are aware of this problem, and if you made it through the interview, you now know it very intimately, even though some of the details are lacking, the broad strokes are enough to really get your attention. But I think if you practice medicine and you know about this problem, you can either try to ignore it and hope that other people will go out and solve this problem for us and for you. And I would assert that that actually costs you energy to keep your anxiety at bay, to keep your worry when you hear about extreme weather events and when you see patients, to try not to connect these dots consciously actually takes something out of you. And what V is really saying and what so many of us uh, who are engaged with climate have noticed is that once you start to deal with this problem directly and you make it a part of your practice and you make it a part of your life, it actually begins to generate energy for you. And I would assert that this is a, a form of renewable energy because you can keep coming back to it over and over again. And as you become more a part of the solutions and you find more and more people are not only in healthcare but beyond taking this problem head on, it will actually add to your life. So although we really hesitate to give doctors and nurses and other overwhelmed health professionals other things to think about, I think you're already thinking about this. And if you're trying to ignore it, it's costing you. And if you embrace it at whatever level, whether it's 
to make your practice more environmentally friendly, to take patients' environmental exposures more to heart when you consider care plans, and even better if you start getting out into your community and weighing in on these issues with the decisions that elected officials make on a weekly or monthly basis about about how buildings are constructed, about what kind of energy is used. The more that you weigh in on these things and become part of the, the growing wave of health professionals that is engaged in this problem, I think you will find that your practice and your life becomes better. Yeah, I think it was Rachel Carlson who said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, those who find beauty in nature will find reserves of energy wherever there is life. And this sounds like the kind of renewable energy within the healthcare system you're talking about. So a very powerful force. Hopefully we can be a part of activating. All right. Well, if there's ever been an interview that left me looking for a real drink, it was this one with Adam Aaron. But uh, true to our, our message, we, we want things that are you know usable by our by our pregnant patients or people who just are cutting back on alcohol overall. So we're sticking with the mocktail, despite maybe interests not to this time. Uh, what do you have, Bruce, for your mocktail? I'm trying something new. It's called a Betty Buzz. It's a Meyer Lemon Club soda. And I'm going to rock my Betty with uh, a little bit of freshly ground ginger and even a spring of basil. Because one of the lessons I've been learning with this mocktail soiree that we keep visiting every episode is that these kinds of, of drinks really like to be mixed with other things, and you can really play with them and dress them up, and that's part of the fun of it. And so what are you going to have? Yeah, well, that sounds like a very summery drink you've got there, which is fitting because it's basically summer throughout fall now. I have something that my brother, uh, who's the chef in Los Angeles and works in the restaurant industry, he brought me a, a whole package of mocktails last night. Uh, we all had dinner at the Water Tower. And so I've got this one from a company that we've talked about before uh, called Liars, a perfect name for a mocktail, by the way, I think. And this is their Amalfi Spritz. So kind of a, again, a, a take on the Campari, Negroni type type drinks. Uh, cheers, Bruce. Skull. <laughs> well, what's the verdict? This is fantastic. And I, I will confess, this was the first one that I had tried before bringing it here uh, on our podcast because we all sampled this last night at dinner. It's chef-endorsed as well. Uh, everyone in the family who tried it uh, really liked it. You, again, you don't, it's not like you taste alcohol, but, but minus that little kick, it otherwise really could convince you it's, it's a drink. And it's just, it's very just easy to drink, light and refreshing. How about yours? I'm not sure I'm getting a whole lot of Meyer lemon. Tastes like a, a cullip soda. And there's some hints of the other things I've sprinkled on there, the basil and the, and the ginger. Overall, it's pleasant. I don't think it's my favorite, but if you need a, a nicely bottled club soda that has some other flavors going on, I guess I'd go back to this. <laughs> that is the beauty of trying all these mocktails, you know, is <laughs> you, <find, laughs> you find what works for you. I, le, lemon sounds very um, appealing on, on certain days, you know, kind of like a Mike's Hard Lemonade alternative. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some need a little more dress up than others. Yeah. And maybe I just need to figure out how to use this. I think that's one of the other lessons with mocktails is that you can do many, many things with them. And part of the fun of having these kinds of drinks is being a bit experimental with them. So this is definitely not a fail. It's just, I think, could probably take it from, a, from where it is to uh, a better experience with a little bit of a, of a different approach. A new episode of Green Docs will be out every other Thursday. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listening content. 
or stop by our website, Green Docs Podcast, all one word, greendocspodcast.com, where you can check out the show notes and links for this episode and send us comments and any questions that you have. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411. Again, go to our website, greendocspodcast.com, like, subscribe, tell your friends, and visit us every other Thursday for a new episode of the Green Docs. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Take care.